Coming to you from the foothills of Los Angeles, it's time for In My Voice with actress, voiceover artist, director, and coach, Kathy Grable. With over 20 years behind the mic, Kathy brings you a unique perspective of working VO actors whose voices you'll know, but their stories you probably don't. Now sit back and enjoy In My Voice. Just in time for Halloween, I have a unique guest in that he started his career as a teenage journalist interviewing the top stars of the era like Jaja Gabor, Christopher Plummer, Jerry Lewis, even Laurence Olivier, and he's written for Hollywood Reporter, Variety, LA Times, as well as he has his first book coming out about arsenic and old lace and the iconic actors and stories behind the movie. After his days as a reporter, Charles Dennis began acting for stage, screen, voiceover. He's now a director and cast me in his most recent film, Deadly Draw. Listen in. Welcome, Charles Dennis. It is so nice to see you in person because we have not been doing that as much, but we're not opened since we up. we shot the movie. Right. We got to do that. That was cool. But not everybody could do things in person, but we worked together on the movie. And it's your movie. Tell us a little bit about that. The movie is called Deadly Draw, and it's about a big card game. It takes place over five days from Monday through Friday. And we follow various people who need to raise the $50,000 in order to get into the card game. We had a lot of fun. We shot at Matthew's Jewelry, and it was just great. And it was wonderful. Oh, thank you, Charles. It was great fun. I mean, it was so great to be back in it, you know, because we were just coming off of a lot of shutdown. And I love working with you and everybody involved. And it well, was you, you and Ulrika were really good. Yeah. And, and uh, Malcolm Denar as well. It was it was it was a good group. Yeah. And when you get a good group, it it's just yeah. it. It and it flows. cuts together beautifully when oh. you see it. It's a wonderful sequence. Well, I can't wait. I yeah. can't wait. So we will uh, start at uh, the very beginning, as they say, right. because, Charles, you have an amazing resume, multi-talented, and you started when you were eight. Is that correct? On my eighth birthday. Well, I began studying uh, formally when I was seven. Uh, there was in the days of radio before radio was just traffic reports mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, rock music. There was actually drama done and there was children's drama. And I began on a very popular Canadian radio series called Peter and the Dwarf. And I got my first gig on my eighth birthday. So. Oh, we're, I always say we're the only ones that want to work on our birthday. I've gotten jobs on my birthday and I'm like, yay, that's my birthday present. <laughs> Because we never know, right, Absolutely. when we're going to be working. You don't know, and you got to be ready. And also, we love what we do. So yeah. it's like, yeah. All right. I so- remember lamenting to my mother one time. I said, what kind of a profession did I choose? And she said, it chose you. Oh, yeah, that's great. That's true. Now, I want to hear a little bit about that. Like, how did you get into, uh, two questions, how did you get into the whole business when you were eight? And then also, how did that first job and experience mold you? Well, I had, I was bouncing off the walls when I was seven years old. My mother didn't know what to do with me. Today, it's called ADHD, but no such thing existed then. 
And some well-informed person said you should send him to Marjorie Purvey. And Marjorie Purvey was a, a veteran broadcaster, actress, and she had this series. Uh, and what's amazing about Miss Purvey, as I still call her years later, was that she wrote, in one week, she wrote a half-hour episode, cast it, rehearsed it, got it on the air Sunday, and then started writing another episode Monday, and the process was repeated Friday, the rehearsal and then the broadcast. And I did the show uh, for about five years. And uh, and then from by that time, it was just so in my veins. And when you went to Miss Purvey's class, you waited in the reception area, and there were always magazines there called Theater Arts, which sadly right. no longer exists. And I would devour these magazines. And it, and that's, in retrospect, but this retention power that I have, I can still remember all the things. And by the time I started writing for the newspapers in, in my teens, um, so many of the people that I read about in theater arts, I interviewed. Oh, isn't or that Or some nice? became, uh, I mean, I remember Tony Perkins was on the cover of theater arts when he did Look Homeward Angel. And many years later, he was my best friend for seven years until his death. So uh, Alfred Drake was another one, you know, who originated the leads in Oklahoma, Kiss Me, Kate, and uh, Kismet. And he was one of the first big interviews I did for the Toronto Telegram when I went to work for them. Oh, that's amazing. Well, I want to hear about that, but that's a jump, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, a lot between here and there, but so I I, I continue on on uh, Peter and the Dwarf. I, I never got to be Peter, which uh, I think nodded me at one point. I said, Gee, why don't I get to be Peter? But uh, I wasn't a straight man; I was a character man, right? And I remember when I was ten years old, I won an award from from the station for my performance as Little Ben, the alarm clock. <laughs> and and so I, I uh, my first part was second elf in Santa's workshop. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, I did all these character voices. And, of course, it's carried on. Uh, there were years when I didn't act. And then when I got back into voiceover, uh, I ended up doing all these different uh, video games and, and animation, etc. Because of my abil ability to, to change voices, accents, etc. And that all goes back to all those years ago. I can so relate to that because I started out in the theater and when, you know, we're trying to make a living and I was, one reason I did is because I would do different things, you know, it's like commercials, TV, film, but I did a lot of theater. That's how I started out. I was a theater major. In fact, we're going to talk a little bit about my alma mater and uh, the, the, uh, I don't know, the small world connection here, but but I just, I remember when I started doing voice, I was like, this is the closest thing to theater to me. Right. It felt like, because I did a lot of character work too, or, you know, comedy and group dialogue type of things. So yeah, it's fun. It's a lot of well, fun. I think, I think I was in third grade when I did that first radio show. And then when I was in sixth grade, uh, my elementary school introduced the concept of a yearly musical. Mm -hmm. And so the first year, uh, it was Peter Pan, but that's always a girl. I ended up playing Captain Hook. Oh, the next great. year, I played Tom Sawyer. And the year after my final year there, I did um, The Cowardly Lion in Wizard of Oz. Oh, my gosh. So I, I really loved being on stage and, and just did not know, well, what am I going to do now? Um, by the time I was in uh, my third year of high school, 
uh, I read in the newspaper about this theater company that was taking over the summer stock at Jackson's Point, which was about an hour north of Toronto, where I grew up. And I contacted these people and uh, auditioned for them and, and uh, was hired as an apprentice with the guaranteed role of uh, Dr. Einstein in Arsenic and Old Lace. And oh, we, my everything comes back it, it today in, in Arsenic and Old Lace. So that was the that made my professional stage debut at sixteen, um, and just just continued on. By that time, I, I started writing adaptations. Remember, I, when when I finished Summerstock, I went down to New York and uh, visited with this man Eli Rill, who had been a teacher at the Actors Studio, and he would come to Toronto on weekends, and I had studied with him. And he said, "You know what you should do, Charles? You know, it's called me Charles of the Bronx." <laughs> Charles, you should uh, do an adaptation of Catcher in the Rye. And I'd never read it because I don't know things everyone else read. And I thought, oh, no, you know. So I read it and I went, oh. I said, well, how do I do this? It, just just take the dialogue. You'll, it, you'll figure it out. The dialogue's there. You don't have to change the dialogue. And because of, um, I had just come off a season of stock and had just been to Stratford, Ontario, and which has this thrust stage there. And my teachers, I was very, very lucky. I had teachers in high school who were very uh, encouraging to me. And they belonged to something called the U University College uh, Alumni. So, and they had this theater downtown, which had been a synagogue down the street from where I was born. Wow. And, and it, it had been converted into a, into a theater. And... Uh, I thought, well, this is this is very meaningful. Mm -hmm. where, yeah. where my relatives had prayed, here yeah. I am. Uh, they prayed and I played. Yeah, I you know? <laughs> love and, that. And uh, did Catcher in the Rye, which I, again, had the, uh, the, woman, the woman who reviewed it for the Toronto Telegram said, Mr. Dennis, who is adventurous to the point of brashness. But it just never dawned on me that you couldn't. Right. So I phoned her and I said, my name is Charles Dennis. I'm doing an adaptation of Catcher in the Rye, and I'd like you to come and review it. And she came. Wow. Now, the teachers had said to me, by the way, do you have permission from the oh, author right. the publisher? Right. I said, uh, don't worry about that. So on Friday, I wrote a letter to the Canadian publishers of Catcher in the Rye saying, my name is Charles Dennis. I'm doing a thing. And on Monday, I got a Monday or Tuesday after we had done it saying, under no circumstances are you to perform this play. But it was too late. The horse was out. Right, right, right. So so that was my, my early career. And, uh, and I had, you know, my, my fascination, obsession, whatever, with the theater. Uh, my first year in high school, I wanted to be on every committee, every this and that, the library club, the camera club, this and that. And I saw in the newspaper that Shasha Gabor's earrings had fallen down the, the drain at her hotel, at the King Edward Hotel. And I went, oh, she's staying at the King Edward Hotel. So I called to see about interviewing her for this school yearbook, which was absolutely preposterous. But the, the guy, they said, oh, you have to call the publicist. And next thing, oh, there I am with Shaja. I still have the picture of Shaja and me. Oh, and said, my God! How old are you, darling? I said, I'm 15. You're perfect for my daughter. And she then gave me uh, Francesca Hilton's address. And oh we began this correspondence. So, and, and Shaja came in and out of my life many times over the next 30 or 40 years, I think. 
That's amazing. And just people led the people led the people, you know. And I feel like sometimes like Zelig, that character that uh, Woody Allen played, who always seemed to be there with I mean, it is, it's truly amazing, the people who I encountered in my life. It truly is, Charles. I mean, you're just a, a walking, like every time I talk to you, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's so amazing. But I, I get it too with, it's one reason I even wanted to start this podcast was that when you said people lead to people lead to people and you go, and I, I say it's a small world, right? And I was talking to someone, oh gosh, years ago now. Um, before COVID, because that's really when I started this. And I said, you know, he goes, I think you should do a podcast. And we're talking. And I said, well, I could do this. I could do this. And he said, I like Kathy's small world, basically, because all these different people that lead to each other that you didn't plan at all, and you run into them, and then you work with them. And then you find out, oh, you know, so I don't know. It's just it's but you know, it's it's um, also part of being a career actor. And I think curiosity and work ethic and a lot of things where, you know, you were, you loved the world of it. And uh, you. Well, I think, I think what was uh, where I was fortunate because I started writing, being paid to write at 17. Paid to write at 17 is yeah, good. Yeah, by the newspaper. But I think one of the reasons why all the people I talked to responded to me was because I'd been an actor. Right. For 10 years. Right. So they weren't talking to some rube. You know, right. You know, so what do you think of Toronto? Uh, uh, you know, uh, I remember my editor sent me a note saying, you didn't ask them how much they're making. And I wrote back, that's none of my business. Good for you. Yeah. You know, because I, I remember Colleen Dewhurst. And if I name drop it, it's because these are people I encountered. But she said, you know, Pete, she said about Hollywood, they always ask you how much you're being paid or how much you paid for your house. And that's very rude. I do too. I think <laughs> I it's know, rude too absolutely. because you go, would I sit at a dinner conversation and ask somebody that? Well, this you is, know? Again, this is nothing to do with what we just said. But yeah. it's, it's like uh, when they find, oh, you're a writer. What have you written that I might have read? I think if you're a dentist, would I ask you whose teeth you worked yeah, on? Yeah. Well, so I, then when I started doing it, I just got so annoyed. You know what I remember? I used to, my stock answer was Grapes of Wrath. And they go, oh, that sounds familiar. Oh, it's a good book. You should read it. I mean, <laughs> now, it's the only profession I find where people ask that kind of question. Yeah, yeah. You wouldn't ask a surgeon. Yeah. Well, who else have you operated on? Yeah, that's you know? a good point. Now, how... Did you get the job when you were 17 at oh, the newspaper? Well, this goes back to Shasha. So, uh, you know, I went and had the picture taken. Uh, and, then, and then the next year I said, well, who can I call this year? I didn't, you know, I was resting on my laurels having met Shasha. Right. So right. then. Um, that must have been quite a kick for a 15-year-old boy, oh, it's by, by the way. If you look at the picture, you can see me <laughs> looking down at her cleavage. Um The next year, Laurence Olivier came to the O'Keeffe Center, which was this huge venue, 3,000 seats. It was a nightmare in the touring company of Beckett. So I thought, oh, that'd be fun to me. So I remember calling the King Edward Hotel and they said, there's no Laurence Olivier registered here. I thought, oh, it must be the Royal York, which was the other huge thing. And so I called there and they put me through and said, yes, can I help you? I said, "Uh, may I speak to uh, Sir Laurence? Does he know you? Well, no. But, uh, well, then you can't speak to him. <laughs> hmm. So, um, and then Mike Nichols came, 
With oh, Nick, my goodness. Seems to, Nichols and May, they were at the height. Of oh, the I cabin. love, yeah. yeah. And I tried to call him, and he answered, you, you, sh- you can't speak to me. I said, I'm speaking to you now. He said, yeah, but it's not right. No. <laughs> no and, and it sounded like a Nich- we're doing a Nichols and May routine. Right, right. He said, listen, you, you, you have to call uh, Mary Jolliffe. I said, who's Mary Jolliffe? She's the press rep. I've never heard this word. Right, the what term. Is press rep? Yeah. She handles all this. You, you can't talk to me. Many years later, when Tony Perkins died, Mike flew out and... We knew about each other through right. time, and there was a friendship there for a while. Um, but I called this Mary Jolliffe, and she said, oh, yes, Mr. Nichols. But would you like to interview Phil Silvers? I thought, would I like to interview? My right. God, because Bill Coe was my, my God. Yeah. And he was coming to the O'Keefe Center in a musical called Do Re Mi, which he had done on Broadway with Nancy right. Walker. It was not a huge hit. But they were getting their money back going all over North America. So it was all set up for that. And um, and then she called me uh, about a week later and said, Mr. Nick, uh, Mr. Silvers isn't doing any interviews. But if you'd like to see the show, uh, there are two seats for you at the box office. Hey, wow. I was in 12, uh, second year high school. So I got my friend Sheldon, and we went down on the subway, down on, to the end to O'Keefe Center, and I went, and we both had our $5 bills ready, because that's what it cost then you wow. know, for an orchestra seat. Wow. And, and Inflation. Uh, yeah, tell me about <laughs> it, because even at the 10 times, you know, forget it. I mean, right. It's, you know. Yeah. Uh, I got to the window, and and uh, I said, you're, you're holding tickets for me, Charles Dennis. The guy pushed the tickets at me, and I pushed the money, and he looked at me like, what's this? I said for the ticket, he goes, these are press seats. This was another concept, press seats. For the next, so what was I, I was 15 or six, yeah, I was 15. For the next five or six years, I never paid for a ticket in Toronto or Broadway, because by this time, what happened was... uh, it's a long story. Anyhow, the O'Keefe Center decided that I was this repository, which a producer said I was a suppository of cinema, but a <laughs> repository. They wanted me there because I saved their ass a couple of times with people that the real press knew nothing about. And right. I would ask questions to keep the press conference going. And right. the first time they said, he was an Australian child. We want you here from now on. You'll be here every Sunday. Well, I love going to the press conference because they had food my mother didn't make. Oh, yeah. And, and, <laughs> and I would sneak these drinks of, of sherry herring or something. I don't And uh, And, and then, it was and such then the a grown-up world, yeah, too. Yeah. And then the word got out to the two rival papers in Toronto. There was this kid who who was who knew his stuff. And so they both sent for me. And... Um, I chose to go with one of them. And so at 17, I became uh, an entertainment writer for the Toronto Telegram. I didn't even know that well, no, part no, of your life. My, my wife, Ulrika, has not seen the uh, the scrapbooks. They're stuck somewhere in a drawer, but I still have them from years oh, ago. That's... And the number of And I basically got to pick and choose stuff in New York. And in those days, there was something called student standby. Oh, I kind of... Well... So, so if you turned up... At, at the airport on the day, uh, and if there was room, you got on for half price. Well, I remember half price tickets in New York where you go. Oh, yeah, down there. That, 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 yeah, that's yeah, different, yeah. though, That I came guess. along in the, in the 70s, yeah. I think. 
uh, and this was it. And, and uh, it was just a phenomenal, phenomenal experience. And I mean, the number of, it's incredible, incredible people I met. And, and I mean, Judy Garland. Oh, my God. Well, I'm, I'm doing a book. Probably won't do it for two years now because I'm booked up with books. But this one is called Who the Hell is Charles Dennis? And this was from an interview I did with Jason Robards in his dressing room after the show. He was doing The Devils. And his then wife, Lauren Bacall, was doing Cactus Flower. And she would call him every night after the show. And um, he was sitting there and they go, I I don't, yeah, no, no, I'm just sitting here with Charles Dennis. And I heard that voice. So the other go, who the hell is Charles Dennis? (laughs) That Lauren Bacall said that. And it always stayed with me. And I thought, this is a good title for a book. Yeah, yeah. Because here's who I am, you know, and this is all these anecdotes that, you know, I mean, Gig Young, whom I adored, who, who you know, his life ended so tragically, but he was so kind to me and so good to me. And, yeah. And, I mean, Rod Steiger, you know, so many, so many people. Steiger, before I even uh, got a job at the newspaper, made my uh, stage debut. Wow. But he just, uh, I think, oh, yes, my, my friends and I, on the waterfront, had just been released to television for the first time. And I was blown away with and by this guy, and I kept seeing him in different movies, and he was always different. And then there was an ad in the paper of the Royal Alexandra Theatre is doing Moby Dick by Orson Welles, mm-hmm. a stage adaptation, Rod Steiger. And and I I looked it was five dollars for that's why I knew mm-hmm. how much tickets were. Right. And and I got a, a seat in the fourth row for opening night of Moby Dick. And I went to that, and then I went backstage afterwards. I, mean, I just had no idea that I couldn't. Right, and, and, right. And Steiger was sitting there, the beard and everything, and, and uh, yeah, I said, I'd, I'd like to interview you for the, oh, there, but the school paper. That was the old school paper. Yeah, 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 tour. because you were so young. Okay, okay, yeah. listen, why don't you, uh, why don't you come here and... And I uh, come on Thursday, come on Thursday, it'll be good. And I went and I sat in the dressing room with him before the show and asked him questions about his movies. And, and I had, I did no, no tape recorder. And it's all gone. Yeah. Flash forward 40 years later. I think it was a 2000 or 1990 something. And I was doing the podcast, which we can talk about too. And, and uh, somehow, Somebody gave me the name of his publicist, and I drove out to Malibu, and uh, and he was a little out of it, but but my he was great, and yeah. I, I now have that right. interview reproduced, yeah, with hindsight. Yeah. He said, "How, how did we meet again, Tommy? Well, how did we meet?" I said, "You were doing uh, Moby Dick in Toronto. Was any good?" I said, "You were terrific. <laughs> oh, good, good, good." And he was really, we had a wonderful rapport, you know. It's so interesting because there are so many things I did early on where I was really brought up, you know, not to, I, I guess the manners, you know, and I think. Don't stick your head up too high. Yeah. May you knock know, it off. So, you know, I'd want to respect them. I wouldn't take the, like all these flashback pictures. Sometimes I'm like, wow, I, you know, there's some of those because sometimes people are just working like you were, they weren't. But there's some that I didn't get, or like you said, the interview's not there. And that is one thing with the podcast. Like, and even we, we even have mutual friends where they're gone now. And I, mm-hmm. you know, with, with the podcast, like even at WME, I remember there were a couple people where I was like, 
we'd sit in the lobby of like, somebody needs to be recording this because it's so rich with yeah. life. Yeah. And even like insight, when you said in hindsight, there's so much insight. And then you go, oh, that didn't get, oh, you I, know. I kick myself about things when I was a kid, but I had a podcast for a while called Paid to Dream. And it's still oh, that's it, lovely. Yeah, it's still available on another. Uh, a friend of mine has a, a some other platform. Whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, platform. <laughs> and so he, you can see these things. If I bother to tell people, they're there. But so many of them are gone. My friend Jeffrey Holder, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Ed Asner. You know. Oh, Ed. Yeah. I know, and Ed. You know, I was blessed. Ed. Ed did. Uh, a lot of things for me, you know, that he turned up for, you know, uh, oh. two of my features, uh, this play that I did with Brian Cranston yeah. and, and Ed, if I remember Ed pounding on the door of the famous radio ranch, you know. Right, up, right. And there's a pounding on people. What is that? It's Asner. He can't get in. Where the hell are you? Let me in here. <laughs> That's so oh, funny. Uh, That's great. All right. So. Well, let's get back on some kind well, of Well, no, this is great. So. Um, we can always do a two-party. We can do, I, I'm thinking we might need to. But one of the things, like, how did you get then from Canada to the States? And well, was that okay. tough so or the, not? You know, the beginning of that, obviously, was going back and forth to New York mm-hmm. to do these interviews. Uh, and then uh, Jerry Lewis came to Toronto, and uh, I did an interview with him because our resident film critic refused to talk to him. Really? We hated Jerry Lewis. He, uh, he, uh, somebody is a joke. His name is Clyde Gilmore. He used to sit there at his typewriter, and then for inspiration, he'd look up at the ceiling, you know. For, and somebody put a picture of Jerry Lewis on the ceiling directly above Clyde's typewriter going, thanks, Clyde, for everything, you know. Idolized Jerry Lewis as a kid. And and I think part of this bouncing off the walls was doing ding, ding, you know. And yeah. That. But once he split up with Dean Martin, it, it it was over for me. I was the, the chemistry between the two of them, right? And the fact that he wasn't always on screen, right? So that you had Dean, right? You know, the, it wasn't too much. But then. I think yeah. by the second whatever, I just went no, and it was over for me. The romance ended. So here I was, you know. Uh, uh, well, actually, about ten years later, um, interviewing Jerry Lewis, and he and it was the first time I'd ever been exposed to an entourage. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, usually when I interviewed people, it was me and maybe the publicist hovering or the publicist going out for a smoke. But there was these guys, and it was really unnerving me. And he kept going, come on, come on, what's going on? I said, I'm not used to this. He said, what do you mean? I said, normally when I interview somebody, it's one-on-one. I was 19 years old. And uh, I said, okay, okay. Why don't you come have breakfast with me tomorrow morning? And we can talk then. So I went and had breakfast with him. Um, anyhow, the result of our breakfast, etc., was at the end. He said, "I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do something for you. I've only done for one other person." <laughs> What's he talking? I'm gonna give you a chance to see me work. And and he kept his word. It was a couple months later, but a first class ticket was there at the airport for me to fly to Los Angeles and then down to San Diego to watch Jerry directing a movie. Wow. So that was how I basically, first time I came to California. And uh, it was, uh, I celebrated my 20th birthday during that talking about special things on your birthday. He barely spoke to me the whole week I was in San Diego. 
I mean, I thought we'd have lunch, didn't right. Nothing, nothing. I learned a lot of other things while I was there. But, uh, you know, and that was that was the beginning of California for me. But then, uh, so that was 66. So the December was two years later, I ended up going to England um, and ended up staying there for six years. Mm-hmm. I got married there. My wife's mother uh, had a green card, and she brought us mm-hmm. to California in 70. Two, I guess, and uh, you know, became a citizen eventually, and and uh, you know, yeah, I've, I've been an Angelino ever since, except for about a four or five year hitch back in New York. Yeah, I, for some reason, I thought because of Toronto, you may have gone through New York, but you actually, in yeah, some ways, yeah, came yeah, through yeah, L.A. Yeah. yeah, I mean, looking back, you know, I, I would have had a different career if there was more California. I, I was very much enamored of the theater mm-hmm. uh, and, and began writing plays and and uh, and, and films. But television, you know, I, I didn't know that television still wasn't. Mm-hmm. You know, it was the, the bastard child. Right, right. It wasn't. Lo- it was yeah. looked down on a little more. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, before we skip over theater, uh, we said that we would come back to this somewhat. Uh, oh, arsenic and old lace. Arsenic and old lace. Which tell the audience about your book. It's coming out, and when I read that. I'm like, oh my gosh, we've got to talk about this. Yeah, but yeah. let's talk about your book. Uh, um, Lace was really the career-defining moment in my life. I was in eighth grade, and there used to be a show on Saturday nights on the CBC called Great Movies. And this movie came on. I'd never heard of it, never seen it, and it just blew me away that there was this movie about murder, and it was taken so lightly, and this body that kept vanishing, and this and that. And I remember at the beginning, it said, based on the play by. So I ran on Monday morning to the library, got the thing, read it, and and I said, I love this, I love this. And and, uh, I'm going to adapt it. We're having a big graduation thing the last day of June. I got permission to do a tab version of it. And uh, I I directed it. I cut it down to 30 minutes. And I played Mortimer Brewster. Oh, Uh, yeah. The next year, I went to high school. And they told me no first-year high school students are ever in the play. I said, what's the play? They said, arsenic and old lace. I said, I'll be in it. I was too young to play Mortimer again. But I got the part of Dr. Einstein, okay. the Peter Laurie part. Yes, remember. yes. And then uh, two years after that, as I mentioned earlier, I made my professional debut playing Dr. Einstein again with the white shoe polish in my hair. And Where was at, this at? at, at, at uh, in Toronto. At, uh, it's now called Von Road Academy. Okay. Uh, and and uh, the next year, I was the drama instructor at a summer camp, and one of the shows I put on was Arsene No Lace, because... I knew arsenic and old lace. Uh, uh, flash forward many years later, Tony Perkins and I became friends, and one of our bonds was arsenic and old lace. Right. And I was so jealous because when he was a kid in Boston, he would only have been about six or seven, but somehow he bought himself a ticket for the matinee of arsenic and old lace. And Boris Karloff was playing oh, Jonathan, and Tony hung around afterwards. And somehow got himself up on stage and walked that set. And that's what confirmed for him that he would be an actor because his dad had died when he was five in the big Broadway star named Osgood Perkins. And his mother whisked him 
to Boston to mm. avoid the curse of the theater. You know? Oh, yeah. But there was no stopping Tony. There was no stopping Tony, no, for no. sure, yeah. Uh, so uh, this this play and, and the movie itself have been very much in my cot. And then when I started to write the book, I realized, oh, my God, the number of people that I met as a kid who had either been in either the original production or the movie. It was oh, yeah. extraordinary. When I worked for the Telegram and I'd go down to New York and, and when I met Jason Robards, the publicist for The Devils was a man called Richard Maney, who was the dean of American uh, press agents. He was the press agent for Arsenal Lace. He was also one of the investors. Uh, there was uh, a little tiny old man in it called Edgar Staley in that production. And he was the original Dr. Einstein. Okay. When, when Edward Everett Horton came to Toronto and so they interviewed him, he was Mr. Witherspoon in the movie of okay. Arsenic and Old Lace. Which, was, by the way, guys, you have to watch Arsenic and Old Lace well, if you wait, haven't. Wait, If yes. you haven't seen it ever, wait until Halloween because the Criterion Collection is putting out the first ever Blu-ray. It's going to look incredible of Arsenic and Old Lace. And yours truly is doing the commentary. Uh, telling all the backstories about everyone in the movie. That is fantastic, Charles. I'm, a, I'm so excited for you. you, I've waited so long for this. And, yeah. And so now, you know, because I, I am a film historian, but I never had a book to back up that. You know, yeah. the podcasts and, and uh, things I would write. For, you know, I've written for The Hollywood Reporter and, and uh, the L.A. Times. But this is my first book. And I'm very, very proud of it. And if you go on Amazon now, there's some fantastic advanced reviews for it. Oh, that's fantastic. Okay. So bonding over arsenic okay, and all lace. Right, and right. we knew each other. We've worked together. We sat in the lobby together. Uh, we've been in a film together. Um, I can't, we've probably read together. You know, some of the stuff, guys, we just do, you know, you do it. You do the next thing and next thing. Sometimes you have to remind yourself like, oh yeah, we did that. <laughs> <laughs> Together we did this, you know, audition or spy. So Arsenic and Old Lace for me, same thing. It's a classic. The play is great. I mean, you really should read the play. The movie's great too, but the play is just the comedy and all of that. So I um, thought it was hilarious. The, the cast is so fun and they would run it a lot of times in Halloween when I was growing up, you know, because it is, it is the first Halloween movie in that one of the clever things that the Epstein twins who did the screenplay was setting it on Halloween night. I mean, it's not right. a big, but, but for the credits, you have a witch, you have a, yeah. pink, you know, it's all there. And it's, it's, I mean, for me, it was reruns when these old movies would come on, but it's kind of like Wizard of Oz came on every year and Arsenic and Old Lace would come on. Just thought it was very funny. Love Cary Grant. The the two older women are just priceless. Boris Karloff, uh, you know. Oh, no, Raymond. Oh, I'm sorry, Raymond. Playing the Karloff. Part, yes, playing the Karloff. Which, part. which I explained the whole sad story yeah. that the commerce that prevented this. Yeah, happening. yeah. So thank you for correcting that. So um, fast forward, I go to college, and I go to a college, Bethel College, and um, we. I'm a theater major, and we do our Snick and Old Lace. And I'm just so excited. And so uh, the director... Did you play Elaine or one of the ants? I played one of the ants. Oh. Uh, his, his, uh, one of, I think his mother was, was a German immigrant. He was, he was very, very influenced by German culture. 
which when you read the original draft, which is called Bodies in Our Cellar, and you read this thing and you go, oh my God, this is terrible. You know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is the story of two old ladies who poison older men and bury them in the cellar. That, yes, that's there. But the dialogue is appalling. Uh, and, and the terrible German puns and stuff. And um, he was really, how can I, how can I write a hit? He was desperate to write a hit. And, and he thought, uh, I'll write something about murder, uh, a trial. And there had been a woman in Connecticut about 40 years earlier who had uh, run a boarding house for elderly men. And she was responsible, it was revealed, for about 80 deaths. Oh, my so goodness. So thought, oh, great, great. You know, Helen Hayes or Ruth Gordon could play this. would be a tour de force. And he went down to Connecticut and, and did all the research and found all the transcripts and everything. But somehow in the writing, you know, he had this black humor that kept coming through. And so he wrote this thing. And he uh, he sent it to Dorothy Stickney, who was the wife of Howard Lindsay. And Lindsay and Krauss were the two biggest uh, playwrights in New York at that time. And they had written the book of Anything Goes. Um, they, they then, uh, Lindsay had, Lindsay adapted the stories of Clarence Day into the show Life with Father. Oh, right. And he right. ended up playing a father a day in it with his wife. And, um, Kesselring went backstage somehow, got the script into Dorothy Stickney's hands. And uh, she told her husband, she said, look at this. It's not very good, but there's something in there. Mm -hmm. And uh, he read it, and his partner, Krauss, was out on the coast writing a movie at that time, and because uh, he didn't act, but Lindsay loved acting. And uh, he wrote and he said, funny idea, two old ladies, bury old men in the cellar, and Cross wrote back, buy it. So they eventually made a deal with Kessel Ring that his name and his name only would be on the script. Okay. But that they would be free to do whatever they wanted with okay. it. Okay. So they gave him one more shot. But so you were telling me before we started, he he what he did live in that house. Yes, he had he had uh, got a, a teaching gig at Bethel. And and uh, years later, when he came to write Bodies in Our Cellar, that's what he used as, as the idea. And there was a long window seat there in the in the sitting room. And, of course, this became the place that the bodies right. ended up in the cellar. Right. So that was the inspiration for the set. Right. Based on and that. it looks, the original Broadway set actually oh, has yeah, some yeah, similarities yeah, to that house. Absolutely. Yeah. But, uh, you know, he, he totally... He from the minute that thing got under option, etc. He never again mentioned Amy Gilligan, the woman in Connecticut who was still doing life in a loony asylum wow. in Connecticut. And he he then came up with, or possibly Dick Maney, the press agent, came up with the idea that Kessler took the idea of his beloved grandmother and thought, "What if she was a killer?" Oh, so okay. that was so that was so the whole inspiration. Vanished, right? But right. again, if you look up Amy Gilligan, you know, uh, and Google her, they say she was the inspiration for Arsenic and Old Lace. But there were Brewster sisters, so there were two of them in the play. Yeah, so in the play, he split her in half and had yeah. Two <laughs> yeah. 
What a, you know, again, what an interesting thing. I, I was like, when you said, oh, I have this book coming out. I'm like, you've got to be kidding. Arsenic and all lace. And then we, I said, okay, is this a true story? Because I was told this and, and I had so much fun doing it as a play. Well, um, all right. So as we move into voiceover, yeah. how do you feel that your stage experience or even your background, how did you get in to actually the video games, all of that? And how do you feel like it's affected your work behind the mic? I remember by the second or third class uh, with Miss Purvey, I remember we had to do a drawing of the microphone. And I remember so dead side of the mic. This the, the mic and I became friends at a very early age. Yeah, yeah. But then there was a long, long time uh, that I had nothing to do with, with radio or the mic. Mm -hmm. you know, I wrote for radio. I wrote for the BBC. A couple of my plays were produced there in the 70s. But it wasn't until I was living here and various people say, do you do voiceovers? Uh, I'd shake my head. And, and I remember Danny Aykroyd, who I've known forever, said, why aren't you making half a million dollars a year with your voice? And I went, okay. You know, I'll listen to that. I, okay, I, I get it. And and uh, I can't remember who I was. probably William Morris, because I've been with them off and on since I was in college. I'm not with them now. Uh, but... Uh, I can't remember who my first voiceover agents were, but probably the early 80s, mm -hmm. I got this great gig. Oh, I know what happened. There was an uh, animated series called Prince Valiant. Right, right. And and my friend Michelle Scarabelli recommended me to the directors. I've got a friend. He'd be great for this. And uh, I went along there to, to, you know, I was cast in an episode and then... Ephraim Zimbalist was King Arthur, and, and he couldn't turn up. And the, and the guy said, Charles, could you, could you read this for us today? So And, and Samantha Agar was, was uh, the queen. And I remember reading this. And when it was over, this guy, I can't remember his name, and he said, uh, call Ephraim, tell him he doesn't have to come in anymore. I mean, it was a joke. but Yeah. I, I, and then this guy did a series called Phantom 2040 based on the, you know, the Phantom uh, uh, that comic strip with right. that, that guy with the thing in Africa with the purple mask. Right. And, and I was cast as the 21st Phantom, the father of the Phantom. And it was okay. a recurring role. And then I played the the, the captain of the, the bots, the guards. And I remember I made him sound like Bob Dole. So he was like this kind of guy from Kansas. You know, <laughs> All right, let's go. And Ronnie Perlman and I were like the two villains in this thing. And that was a great experience. And I guess suddenly I was I was on that list of people for animation. Right. And then uh, I remember I got um, I got booked on something called Shrek. I don't know what the right, heck. What is Shrek? Right. Well, that was that was kind of innovative. You yeah. know, like we it was very unique. Well, idea I, I, at the time. I, I went in. It was part of a villager. They're going to burn Shrek's house down. Or so, you know, I did it. It was about an hour of work. You know, I got whatever we got for scale back then. Mm -hmm. And then this thing opens up a year, and it's a mega thing. Oh yeah. Who knew Eddie Murphy and and uh, what's his name who plays Mike Myers? You know. And so I took my daughter was then, I don't know, two or three. And we went along to see the picture. And there's this scene with all the villagers. I can't tell. It's like a cacophony of sound. And and uh, at the end, I'm looking at the credit call. 
These voices, Peter Dennis. So Peter, they they got my name wrong, and I called. No, Peter Dennis was an English actor. He died. Okay. He died. Okay. Around that time, and I called DreamWorks and I said, "My name is." And he said, "Hold on a second. Two minutes. Ago. Uh, we didn't use your voice. Sorry." So okay, fine. And then I booked this uh, Disney thing called Home on the Range, oh, and yeah. I was the villain. Okay. Uh, uh, and you know, I saw. Well, they're not going to. They're not going to afford Clint Eastwood. Or, or Jack Palance or whatever. And I did an audition. It was sort of a melange of these voices. You know, his name was Rico, and he talked <laughs> like that. And I booked it. And, and I said, okay, God didn't want me to be in Shrek. He wanted me to play this villain, you know, the uber villain, right. as he described it to me. And it was, and we went along to the, uh, the premiere of the El Capitan, and my daughter and I were on the red carpet. And it was a, it was a huge, huge. Aww. It was great. It and was those, great. they do premieres well, I have to say. Yeah. Oh, they did. It was wonderful. We it's loved it. Really fun for kids, um, too. I've never worked for Disney since, but then I've been told by them, you know, if they like you, you never, you, you never have to worry. But it, things had changed there. You know, it's oh, not yeah. like the old days. Oh, where yeah. Someone like Verna Felton was always in all yeah. the great Disney. You know, yeah. people you didn't know on camera, but these voices were yeah, very it's special very different Disney now. voices. Yeah. That's how I got into the, you know, and then the video games started with some small little dinky game about 15 years ago. Uh, but then I got, you know, I, I've, I've now done uh, Star Trek, Star Wars, Doom 3. I've done some. Yeah. But nobody in voiceover, other than stars who get paid a big fat fee up front, like 25 grand or something. Yeah. We don't get any residuals yeah. for those games. Yeah. And it's, it's too bad. And they sell better than any DVDs or Oh, Blu-rays. it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. amazing. It's, and that's why I well, really... Well... <laughs> <laughs> careful. Yeah, careful. Don't get sucked into my narrative. Yeah, I was going to say. Now, a couple of things I want to ask you, and I'm also conscious of our time. And we I'm, could keep I'm going. good. Oh, you are? I thought I'm you had good. a hard no, out. No, 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 because we can go more. Okay. Cut this in half if you need it. Yeah. Okay. So if what are, what? well, back to the Shrek, mm-hmm. when you said you took your daughter, you didn't see the name. And I'm so glad you did that, by the way. That's really interesting. Um, it's, guys, you don't always realize when, when you go to a premiere, if you've been cut out or partially oh, cut oh out. Oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. There's the stories of the women oh, who have yeah. gotten all dressed up and spent a fortune on their oh. hair. And they're sitting there, where am I? Or uh, a guy that I worked with that. Actually, it's funny. He could laugh at the point he told me this story. Sometimes it's not funny for a while, but he um, was in Jerry Maguire and he worked months on Jerry Maguire. And uh, he flew his mom in from Colorado for the premiere. And he gets there and he's looks like an extra in one scene in the back where they're having therapy. So he's like, it was just mortifying. And, you know, he worked months on it. Just, he was like, it was, he was somebody's brother that was like, it was Jerry's brother or something. I don't know. And he completely got cut out except for this one where he, you know, he got paid for the three months or whatever. And I'm sure he gets residuals, but he wasn't in there. I don't know if he got a credit and he had a big role. So he said, I was there, you know, every day. And, and so he signed the call sheet. Yeah. You yeah, that you can you can get yeah. around that. So he said, insult to injury. He's up at the Hollywood, uh, you know, reservoir doing hiking around there, 
he runs into uh, Renee Zellweger at the uh, time. And he goes, hey, Renee. And he goes, we knew each other, you know, but it had been years. Uh, Did he have scenes with her? In, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. He had a major. I don't even know how they cut him out when he was telling me, like, how much he. They, they just cut that character, basically. And so he said, she goes, do I know you? <laughs> So not only did he go to the, yeah, it's one of those. We well, might cut that part out, but yeah. Whatever. Well, uh, in 1969, I moved to England because uh, I was supposed to have been in a play on Broadway in January. And at the last minute, the boy who was originally the one cast who couldn't do it was now available. And they said... Um, we want him, but we'll pay you to be the understudy for the same money. I said, great. And then three days later, we can't afford for you just to be understudy. You'll have to be an assistant stage manager. And I said, no, I swept floors. Yeah. You know, when I said, no. So yeah. I passed. And the boy's name is Richard Dreyfus. Uh-huh. And, and, and the play folded after 10 yeah. days. So just as well. So I, I had nothing. What could I do? You know? Yeah. And I couldn't work in the States. They had to get me a permit right. to do it. Right. So uh, I ended up going to England for various reasons. And it was about the second or third week I was there. I was sent by William Morris, my agents, to go read for a movie called Patton. And, and I wanted to ask you about Patton, so this oh, yeah. is great. Yeah. So, so uh, and one of my agents, William Morris, calls, uh, and uh, oh, what was her name? Ken Anakin's daughter. I loved her. She called me. Said, "Charles, uh, pack a bag. You're going to Madrid." I said, "I'm sorry. The car is coming uh, in an hour, and you're going to Madrid." <laughs> I said, "What am I going to do there?" You know, flamenco dance. Oh, Patton, you've got that part. What part? I couldn't even remember, you know. Yeah. As we all know. Yeah. You know, we audition for things, and then you never hear anything for a month yeah. or two months. And sometimes you don't have a title even that you're auditioning for, you yeah, know. Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, it was. It was. Uh, no, I remember it. it was. It was. A, it was a scene at the Battle of the Bulge, and, uh, and my line was, "It's the Third Army. He did it. Old Georgie did it." And I, you know, so next thing I know, I'm on a plane going to Madrid, and and. <laughs> It was March, I think. It was freezing. And and I get to the airport in Madrid, and there's a guy with a car, Senor Deniz, Senor Deniz. You know. Yeah. I, I'm going to be in a movie. And yeah. It's a big movie. Right. And uh, I recognized the actor, Edward Bins. He was in the lobby. And I said, uh, oh, hi. I said, where is everyone? He said, oh, they're, they're up in the, in Segovia. They're, they're doing Battle of the Bulge. I thought, oh, my God. I'm going to probably shoot tomorrow, and it's all over. Yeah. Well, they were waiting for the snow to fall in Segovia, and it wasn't falling. So they came back. And I'm waiting around for the snow to fall in Segovia. And I'm now in my third week in Madrid. Oh, I bet you were having a ball. I had a ball until I found out that uh, I didn't have per diem plus the hotel. I had per diem. And uh, oh. Jane Anakin and Jane said, Charles, oh, she's a, uh, a telex. Remember telex? Is, yeah. Charles, suggest you move immediately. I had just enough per diem left to pay for, wow. the, for the Castellana. Wow. And I moved into a modest little hotel across the street. Anyhow, I'm going to be here forever. I'm just going to be here, but I'm having a good time. I'm buying a nice little leather jacket. Yeah. I'm going to the flamenco dancing. And you're getting paid. And there are these Peruvian air hostesses right? who are very nice, and I'm getting paid, and I'm not cold. And uh, 
Um, and then George Scott, who we all know was a bit of trouble and a troubled man, he was so dead drunk and whatever it was, he couldn't shoot the next day. And there were very few scenes in Patton where George Scott didn't play Patton. Oh, yeah. So they start thumbing through the script and they find a scene that he's not in that was scheduled to be shot seven weeks from then. And Franklin Shaft and the director said, we'll shoot this tomorrow. They said, but the, but the actors that we booked, they said, pay them off, we'll find somebody here. So someone had mentioned, there's this kid and he could play this part. So and it's the scene, it's after Patton slaps the soldier uh, for being a coward. And there's a scene where a soldier drags a journalist, a war correspondent, into a bar to introduce him to his friend who was a witness. And I got this marvelous monologue where I could, I chose to impersonate George C. Scott. And, and, and you know, I got it. I booked it. And and uh, that's a whole other story about what happened on the set and everything else. But, you know, whatever it was, six months, eight months, ten months later, the movie opens and my scene is gone. Oh, now, in retrospect, yeah. as a writer-director, I'd have cut that scene, too. It's redundant right. because we're going to see the route. Right. We don't right. need to find out right. how the story came out. Right, right. Cut to the thing. But I'm telling you, Kathy... For about three or four years after that, I would dream about going to see Patton and the scene was there. Yeah. And yeah. through the years, you know, I've got to find... Fox is the one studio that never throws anything out. And I would love... Yes. I don't care about the scene. That's itself. what I was I just thinking. want a still because there was yeah. a still photographer. Oh, I remember him. Somewhere I want the picture of me. With that buzz cut, because they took, and I remember going back to to London and my cousin disowning me because my hair was so short and everyone had yeah. you know, Beatles hair. Um, yeah. And also, you know, my I was first just movie, that. and it won the Oscar for Best Picture, I know. and I'm not in it. Well, it's interesting because as you were talking, I thought, well, he, you should get that scene, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, we don't, you know, we don't get those always. I mean, we really well, don't. If you're I, cut I, out, you, know, you don't. But I'm going to make a concerted effort now. That yeah, you should. Again. Yeah. So, you know, so they want a hundred bucks. So find it for me. Get me oh, the yeah. still. Oh, yeah. It's for my book. And yeah, for your book. And there's so many things that get thrown out even. Yeah. I, I, sadly, you know, I've well, heard remember, of MGM stories had like. had a huge fire in the 50s. And yeah. The, Everything before that yeah. was destroyed, the negatives, yeah. et cetera. But Fox, because I remember on, on AMC, they used to have a weekly show where they would show cut musical numbers. Right, right. You know, from the, there's no business like show business. Yeah. They had numbers with Merman that, that just didn't yeah. really get into it, but they yeah. had them. Yeah. Oh, gosh, that's great. Great yeah. stuff. All right. So um, you've worked with some of the larger-than-life people, from Christopher Plummer to Max von Sydow. Am well, I saying yes, that? Yes, yes, Max von Sydow. Well, Anthony we were all- Perkins. So what what was it like working? I know we've talked about Anthony Perkins, but anything that comes to mind? Tony was the funniest man I ever knew. I remember one night uh, I, I was staying at his place in Cape Cod, and he made me laugh so hard that I fell on my left hip and <laughs> It really hurt, and I didn't. And and and, he, and I said to him, "If if this happens again, please make sure that I fall on the right one. Yeah. So at least <laughs> you know, if I'm crippled, it, it yeah. straighten itself." He just was. He was just so funny, 
and, and people who only know him from Norman Bates. Although I find his performance as Norman Bates is hilarious. Oh. He's very, very well, funny. Well, if you knew him too. You yeah, know. yeah. But I mean, I remember seeing him on stage uh, with, with uh, Dick Benjamin in uh, uh, The Star Spangled Girl. And that was the revelation. I, I said, oh, my, this guy's a riot. Yeah, you yeah. Know, he was a master comedian. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because I would say you meet more people in voiceover. Uh, yeah, I, and, I never met Fonzito. Chris and Max Fonzito were in the same huge thing that I was in. But as you know, usually with, with the games, you never meet anybody oh, else. no, I, uh, yeah, absolutely. They always absolutely. separately. Yeah, they the do only, separately. The, the thing about that Phantom show that was incredible was it was like an old radio show. I love Everybody they, would come in. Yeah, I love when they lives. do that. Yeah. Um, but I, the time I met Christopher Plummer was waiting in the lobby. It wasn't William Morris. I was with Abrams, I think. And I just remember looking over and my husband and I had just been talking about him, like, you know, asking, well, what's he doing? You know, we're anyways, big sound of music, you know, was when I was like four years old, it was like this big deal for me. And uh, we were just talking about, it and I, you know, obviously he was quite elderly at the time. And I went in there and I'm waiting to go read and, I see him there, and he was in a in a tracksuit. You know, he was in sweats, and I'm well, like, elegant tracksuit. Elegant, oh, yeah. no, no, very, yeah, yeah. velvet velour, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And I went, that's Christopher Plummer, you know. So yeah, it's just amazing the people that are hanging out, that are going in to record. That's and, amazing, yeah, that you meet because also I, th- I think if you're not cast, well, first of all, they record you separately, but on camera sometimes, unless you're cast. When you're auditioning, and they, everything's changed now, because uh, we do self-tapes even for on-camera, but uh, you don't wait around. Well, thank you, with COVID. The same, and you, yeah, thank you, COVID. But they, you, it's more people your own type. Like, you'll sit there and go, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, you, you know, you'll go, I did not know this many people look like my sister. You know, my sister doesn't look like this, you know. So in voiceover, you just meet different ages and different people. And it's just so rich because, and, you know, you've gotten a chance to sit around and talk and laugh and cry. And, you know, we we go through a lot of life together when we're when we're waiting, although now it's changed with well, the COVID. But, but I we'll do see. remember towards the end of that, they would always... You know, the the celebrity people, they sort of, <laughs> like we were the unwashed. Oh, yeah. Well, that they was. sort of sneak them through, you know. Towards like, the end, like, don't, yes. Don't look at them. You know, <laughs> they'll turn to stone. <laughs> We'd see that at the end, for sure. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, um, a couple more questions. There's so much great stuff here. Charles, I feel like we could have a series. Maybe we'll talk about it. Okay. So, what is the strangest experience I'm almost afraid to ask you. Oh, I mean, the two stories that, that stick out of my mind from, from two of my, my boyhood idols who were also very great friends. The first was Chris Plummer. And uh, he was late coming to uh, Stratford that summer when we did Anthony and Cleopatra. Mm-hmm. And um, a wonderful actor named Max Helpman an Australian actor, had done the play before. And, and uh, so Max kept rehearsing with Zoe Caldwell, and they were both Australians. So, but Zoe finally said, I'm not going to do it again until he turns up here. I'm not doing another day. <laughs> so so Chris finally turned up, and and he uh, 
He came on stage wearing a cardigan sweater. It was like the mink coat of card. Well, you know what he was like. Right. With a tracksuit. Right. Know? Oh, and yeah, yeah, yeah. He and, looked- and there was a strict rule about nobody smoking on that stage. You know? Right. And Chris came out with a cigarette. And we and we there was a the stage manager was this little Nazi called Thomas Bodanetsky, and we all lived in fear of him. Oh, right. And there was Chris <laughs> continuing to drag on the cigarette, and we watched the ash get longer oh, and longer, <laughs> and we thought, what's going to happen when it hits the floor of the stage? Right. Well, before it did, Mister Plummer opened the left pocket of his cardigan and flicked the ash into his pocket. Wow. Went, this is a class act. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that yeah. always stayed with me. Yeah. Also, the fact that his very first day of rehearsal was a scene where Anthony is commanding his troops to go off. And, and at Stratford, you know, they would go up up the aisles and through right. the tunnels and this and that. And, and uh, Chris did the line and everyone spun around because they'd been rehearsing for weeks. Right. <laughs> And walked off in perfect symmetry. And Plummer was there. And he walked down stage. And Michael Langham, the director, was up in the audience somewhere. And Chris put a hand over and said, Michael, oh, Michael. What is it, darling? I have the feeling you've rehearsed this already. No, 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 not at all, not at all. <laughs> and then Chris went, well, it doesn't really matter, does it? And we didn't know what that meant until basically he redirected the whole show. Oh. Yeah, yeah, he was... He, uh, was, he was very tough in those days. By the time you met, he was a sweet old guy. Yeah. And he'd stopped drinking, which affected him. Right, right. He said, I, I don't drink whiskey anymore, Charlie. I'm just a wino. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds went, just I, like him. I went to meet him for lunch once, about 20 years ago. And uh, he's with the Pierre, one of those hotels that he frequented in New York. And I arrived at the desk. I said to Major D, uh, Christopher Plummer, please. And I said, oh, oh yes, uh, come with me. And and he walked me through, you know, this this old and faded <laughs> restaurant. And we arrived at a table where there was a man that looked like he was 200 years old. And he sort of looked over at me. And I said, this is not Mr. Plummer. Oh, I'm so sorry, sir. Well, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. Oh my goodness! But what was left of oh, Douglas him. Fairbanks yeah. was so sad. Oh, but I told Chris, "Jesus Christ, Doug Fairbanks! <laughs> I'm not in my coffin yet." Oh, that's funny. But the other one was, was Jason Robarts when uh, I interviewed him for the Devils backstage, and I mentioned before, you know, McCall was doing a play when they were married at the same time, and Jason. He had shaved his head completely for the role because he had to wear this this long, it was a period piece, 17th century. And he, he wears a wig through most of it. And then when they're going to execute him or burn him at the stake, they shaved his head. So mm-hmm. he had to shave. So we're sitting there and he's in this ratty green bathrobe. Sitting on a so it was the Ziegfeld Theater, which was built, you know, by Florence Ziegfeld mm-hmm. back in the twenties, and the furniture in the dressing rooms was all from that. The, right, no one right. put a new. And, oh, the and, dressing and, rooms can be bad oh, in bad, theater. Bad news. <laughs> and and uh, the the um, the sofa that it was just a two person sofa, and and uh, it was stuffed with straw. I mean, that's how old it was. You know, no, no cushions, nothing. It was straw. And I was sitting in the chair talking to him. 
And he had this, this little old uh, Irish dresser named Jimmy, a little wizen guy. You know? and, uh, Can I get you anything, Jake? I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And he'd sit there with his legs, with his skinny legs crossed with a bald head. He looked like some kind of insect. <laughs> smoking a cigarette, which he kept flicking. Like his friend, Mr. Plummer. Yeah. Into where? Oh, I'm noticing that, that the, the ashes are going into the hole in, in the sofa. And now I'm seeing that gray smoke is starting to rise from the sofa. Oh my. And it's now becoming orange. And now, oh, that's flame. Yeah. And I'm going, and he's still talking to me, you know, John, <laughs> you know, when I, Chris and I, God, we got a lot of trouble. Traffic. I said, Mr. Robards, what, what is it, Charlie? I said, Jesus Christ, the sofa's on fire. <laughs> no panic, no nothing. No panic. It's still legs across. Hey, Jimmy, what is it, Jimmy? Sofa's on fire. Oh, so the guy <laughs> comes back. And he's sitting on the sofa. He's sitting there watching the flames. And, and, and Jimmy appears with this tall, uh, translucent liquid. It was about to pour and Roars goes, no, no, water, Jimmy, water. He was going to pour vodka or something. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but that's, you know, we will not look upon their like again. Thanks for joining today. If you enjoyed the episode with Charles, be sure to check out all our past podcasts wherever podcasts are found and keep listening for more details and more episodes. In My Voice is a production of Word Merchants Media and is co-produced by Greg Perkins and Kathy Grable, engineered and mixed by Alex Bogdasarian. And I'm Brent Huff, your announcer. For more information on this podcast, our scripted podcast, ebooks, private voice coaching, and more, visit KathyGrableStudios.com. Bye for now.